Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize for you the meeting that I have just had with the bipartisan leaders, which began at 8 o'clock and was completed two hours later. I began the meeting by making this statement, which I think needs to be made to the nation. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with the problems of sources of supply as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad wherever they are in the world. It will be government-wide pulling together the nine different fragmented areas where, within the government in which this problem is now being handled. And it will be nationwide in terms of a new educational program uh, that we trust will result as, uh, from the discussions that we have had. You are now listening to episode one of Born Felon, the James Rosemont story. The call came in from a federal criminal institution. On the other end of the phone was James Rosemont. His nickname was Jimmy Henchman or Jimmy Ace. And the call from inside the feds, as they were called, was a simple exchange. Jimmy wanted to tell his story. Jimmy Henchman is in jail for five life sentences. A street hustler from the 80s and early 90s, Jimmy was able to parlay his fierce reputation into a successful hip-hop mogul who was then convicted as a federal drug kingpin. Jimmy's story is an impetus to cover the deep connection that has driven hip-hop music starting in the mid-80s until today and the complex relationship to the culture and the federal criminal justice system. This story is a personal journey into the deep underbelly of a billion dollar business. It is also a look at the American criminal justice system through the lens of celebrity, the war on drugs, and the current explosive debate on race, policing, and mass incarceration inside our country. If you ask the question, why are some drugs legal and others illegal? Why are cigarettes and alcohol legal and pharmaceuticals in the middle and these other drugs, marijuana, you know, other ones illegal? You know, some people sort of inherently assume, well, this must be because there was a thoughtful consideration of the relative risks of drugs and, you know, but then you think, well, that can't be because we know alcohol is more associated with violence than almost any illegal drugs and cigarettes are more addictive than any of the illegal drugs. I mean, heroin addicts routinely say it's harder to quit cigarettes than it is to quit heroin. So, so it's not as if there was ever any kind of National Academy of Science that 100 years ago decided that these drugs, these ones had to be illegal and those ones legal. Over the course of three years, I was able to record almost 100 phone calls and interview Jimmy, not only about his life, but his journey through the federal criminal system in the Eastern District in Brooklyn and the notorious Southern District of New York. They play tremendous roles in this story. And to understand Jimmy's life and where it ended up, you have to understand the mechanics of federal investigations, the FBI, DEA, NYPD, and the hip hop music industry. 
This year marks a special anniversary for the federal judiciary, or more precisely, the Southern District of New York. The federal judges serving the Southern District of New York took their places in the ceremonial courtroom. This special session was a celebration of the district's 225th anniversary. Because the District of New York was the first to sit following the passage of the Judiciary Act of 1789, our court has come to be known as the Mother Court. Who I am right now is not important. What is important is my reporting on this story and Jimmy's journey. At times, my reporting and sources needed their identity protected. I have honored that request, and I will communicate that to you when needed. I spoke to Jimmy for the first time on December 17th, 2015 at 6.22 p.m. Jimmy was speaking on the phone from one of the worst federal prisons in the United States, Hazleton in West Virginia. This would be the first of over 100 phone calls. So, so tell uh, me something. Yeah. Do you know all the characters now? The amount of information and it's it's complex, and it was even complex even to the jury. Um, yeah. For them to understand the, the magnitude of the charges, here it is, the worst, the worst drug law that they have on the books. They gave it to me. Jimmy was in prison for five life sentences. He was charged under the Federal Drug Kingpin Act. The government and the DEA thought Jimmy was the CEO of something called the Rosemont Organization. In the above statement, Jimmy was referring to the draconian sentence that had him in jail for almost 500 years. He was talking about his personal experience inside a federal courtroom in the Eastern District of New York, located in downtown Brooklyn. According to the U.S. Code, the Kingpin Law is designed to put the heads of drug trafficking rings behind bars for a long time. This can effectively shut down an entire drug dealing operation. In order to be prosecuted under the Kingpin Law, the state must prove that the accused must have been a leader or organizer who supervised five or more people in the commission of three related federal crimes in a certain period of time. The accused must also have derived substantial profits from supervising low-level employees in a scheme to traffic drugs like heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, or marijuana. The punishments for drug kingpins are among the most severe under federal law. This is because federal prosecutors have a vested interest in putting drug kingpins behind bars for a long time. Some punishments include a first-time conviction for operating a criminal enterprise carries a mandatory minimum prison sentence of 20 years. Additional prison time can be added for a life sentence and a fine up to $1 million. A second conviction for leading a criminal enterprise or a first-time conviction for operating a very large-scale criminal enterprise carries a mandatory minimum sentence of 40 years and a maximum of life in prison. The worst one. Like, there's no other higher yeah. drug count in the United States of America. And I got that. And, and you would, like, again, like I said in the email, you would have thought that um, that they were talking about somebody else because for me to run an organization that the way they said I ran it, 
I would have had to every day be a part of that organization. I have to know the intricate parts of that organization. I would have had to, you know, have some kind of hand in it, especially for the charge. And if you read the the, the element of the charge, that I would have had to be the principal um, leader, manager, and, and, and organizer of that organization. There's no way that I could have done all of that. So in, in, in retrospect, I know that them jurors couldn't have put all that together and, and to say that I made $10 million a year or uh, gross that much a year from, from this because I, I wouldn't have been able to do nothing else. On that first call, I could tell that Jimmy was a storyteller and his intellectual prowess and business acumen were very sophisticated. He could not have done deals with Mike Tyson, Don King, Lennox Lewis, Lior Cohen, and many other hip-hop power players if he didn't have nerves of steel. His criminal persona did not match up with the person I spoke to from jail. I had to ask myself, if what he was telling me was the truth, or was it a version of his own personal truth? Maybe he dabbled in the drug game, but was he a drug kingpin with the same charges that El Chapo faced? Was that even possible? Good gangsters have that chameleon-like ability to endear people to them and their mission. Anyone who is a true gangster is simply an elevated entrepreneur playing a game where the stakes were death or jail forever, where Jimmy was right now. If they ever had got the other side of the picture of what I did every day, what I got up and what I went to work and did, and the people that I was in touch with and who I rubbed shoulders with, they would have known that there's no way that I could have been some leader of some organization, a bi-coastal organization, and, and so on and so forth. There's just no way. Man. And like I yeah. said in the email, I was like, these people, there were times in the trial where I just wanted to get up and said, hold on, hold on, guys, let's pause this for a minute. Who, who are y'all talking about on trial right now? Because it's sure enough, they weren't talking about me. They created a whole other character that didn't even exist, that only existed in the imagination of, of boys and girls who believe in, in boogeyman. If what Jimmy was saying was true, there was evidence leading up to his conviction to prove a few things. Within the federal criminal justice system of New York, at the federal level, the United States attorneys hunted big game. Corrupt Wall Street soldiers, mafia dons, politicians on the take, crooked cops, and a few times, hip-hop gangsters. Because all of the above made big, splashy headlines in the New York Post, the New York Times, or the Daily News. These hunts elevated careers of the prosecutors to political careers, or million-dollar retainers as defense attorneys, or prestigious jobs at a white shoe law firm. And they created that for the jury to, they so skillfully too, they created that and the jury brought into it. Well, I mean, you know, the thing that sort of 
struck me in reading some of the interactions with the jurors, and I think I even mentioned this to Leanne, I read some, I don't know what documents it was in, where I think even one of the jurors said that English was his second language. And I'm sitting Let's here... Let's call reading, it from a federal prison. I'm sitting here listening, yeah. reading, reading what's going on in court, and I'm going, I'm having a hard time grasping all of this and grasping how they're presenting this case. How is a juror who's probably like a working class person who is not educated in the criminal justice system, how are they even understanding all of this, you know? And, and uh, Not at all. Listen, said, I didn't even understand half of the Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and what, you know, the other question I have for you, how far back do you think Todd Kaminsky put you up on the wall and was like, I want to get this guy? Todd Kaminsky, at the time that Jimmy was investigated, was a U.S. attorney out of the Eastern District of New York City. He has gone on to a political career. It's my honor to introduce to this body our newest senator, Senator Todd Kaminsky. Uh, Senator Kaminsky represents the 9th Senate District, and just so you know a little about him, he has had a career in uh, public service. He spent three years as an assistant, assistant district attorney handling domestic violence uh, issues in Queens before he became a federal prosecutor. Uh, he was uh, under the Eastern District U.S. Attorney's Office, Loretta Lynch, who is now, as you know, our U.S. Attorney General. Uh, he had the successful prosecutions of names that I won't go through, but certainly he comes with a uh, high ideal for this body, a uh, great deal of integrity and intelligence. When he got promoted, he, his first order of the day was, I, I want to investigate this guy. His name been coming up. And he, he was reading up on me. That Vibe magazine ended up really by, that Ethan, Ethan Brown had written up on yeah. me was almost like my uh, curse against me because every law enforcement read it. And, and just like how um, Ethan Brown started the article, he was like, uh, somehow... I've became the uber villain in the in the in the music business, and and for a fact that that was true. If people thought Jimmy was the uber villain of the hip hop music business, what did that mean in practice? Did he extort his artists that were signed to him under management deals, intimidate executives, steal money? What did this tagline mean? Some of the people I talked to said that Jimmy's past was more foreboding than his work inside hip-hop. He was known to get artists out of bad deals or travel inside neighborhoods that other scared executives would not go to. Unlike Suge Knight, who Jimmy had a long-running feud with, Jimmy wasn't a bully. It was the opposite. The second call with Jimmy took place on December 22, 2015. 
I went back and read the Ethan Brown article. When you did that article, it seemed like, and correct me if I'm wrong, the purpose of it was sort of to just talk about the whole Quad Studios thing, get it, get it on the record, and be done with it. Uh, well, up until then, I, I always felt that um, the best thing to do is just to remain silent on the issue. Um, Ethan Brown had reached out to a publicist and um, and we were mulling over should I even address the issue and would it go away at that point. The irony of this statement is that the shooting of Tupac Shakur outside of Manhattan Recording Studio would be a seminal event in Jimmy's life, a crossroads of epic consequences. Many people believed that Jimmy had Tupac set up, robbed, and shot. It was a tale that captivated hip-hop insiders, conspiracy theorists, and journalists still to this day. A convicted killer behind bars for an unrelated murder-for-hire plot says he was paid to shoot and rob Tupac Shakur outside a Manhattan recording studio in 1994. Dexter Isaac made the claim to the website allhiphop.com in a post published on Wednesday. Isaac claims he was paid $2,500 to carry out the shooting and robbery by James Rosemond, owner of Czar Entertainment. It sounds like he's willing to produce Tupac's jewelry from that time, which would definitely validate his claims if it's able to be, you know, confirmed. He's also been cited by uh, Jimmy Rosemond as someone that's cooperating with the authorities, and this is I think in part why he's come forward, um, at least in part, it's obvious he and uh, Jimmy Henchman don't get along. Um, what his true motivation is, I don't know. You know, I can't say, I can't speculate at all. James Roseman's lawyer has denied the accusation. New York police are investigating the claims. Shakur was shot five times during the incident at the Quad Studios in Manhattan in 1994. He survived, but was later gunned down in a slaying that remains unsolved. John Belmont, the Associated Press. The crux of that shooting lays in the relationship between Jimmy and a gangster from Brooklyn named Haitian Jack. This relationship will be deeply explored as we get into how these 90s era crack kingpins and stick-up kids influenced every aspect of hip-hop music and culture. And so Ethan... Um, you know, he hit me with the whole, he was going to put it in the New York, the New Yorker. I think that's who he was. He had claimed he was writing for at the time. Was yeah. The New, either New York Magazine, New Yorker. And yeah. so we felt, okay, if we're going to do it for a big magazine like that, let's just get it out the way. Um, and hopefully the rumors can subside them. And yeah. so at, at that point, I just, you know, this was the first time I would uh, be talking about it to some extent. But not only that, it was, game was really bubbling at that time. So what I, what he asked me to do, he asked, can he um, accompany me while I was with game? It's countdown time, ladies and gentlemen. This is Hot 97. We are live from the Shrine Auditorium in L.A. Yeah, and who, who better to talk to in Los Angeles? Yeah. 
than the kid game, who I haven't seen. You know that other than getting in it, I can't even get, I'm banned from this place. Why? I don't even know how I got in the shrine. What, what did you do to get banned? Back in back in the day, man, we had a Royal Rumble. Like, you know what be happening on WWF. Like, we had one of them in here, and I've been banned. But so, I really? just back in. Yeah. Wow. So it's just, Welcome back, fam. Welcome back to the shrine. It's and good to see banned. you. You had to come all the way to L.A. to, to This know, is nasty that you haven't a, been up to see me in so long. Get out long. of jail free card, man, from Angie. It's so crazy, too, because you're in a press room, and I'm wondering how you're handling yeah. the situation with Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy's my brother, and that's that's you know it's ride or die, man. So um, you know, unfortunate situation, but um, you know we gonna keep our heads up and, and hope for the best. And summertime, I mean not summertime, it is summertime, but sometimes you know the government be entrapping you and flipping stuff, and you never really know until you know the case is all rolled out and everything, and at the end to see how everything plays out because you know we can't even see uh Ben Laden's body. So why we believe in something that they saying about Jimmy? And so he flew down to Florida. Yeah, and um, and I gave him full access to me behind the scenes doing what I do um, as a manager. And um, then he ended up after he he did the interview. He told me he was putting it in in the Vibe magazine. I could have done a Vibe magazine article with a writer that I was I felt was more compatible to me. Um, sure. I just didn't know how that turned into a, a New York Magazine article into a, a Vibe um, article. This is when I knew that this this article was a problem. It was yeah. when I went, I went had a case in Maryland and um, I had went to trial on it. And the detectives out there made it their business to sit in the lobby with that magazine and had it for all to see. Was giving it to the prosecutor and it was it was almost like this is a bad guy. We need to convict him on this. And it was it was me and a DJ had gotten to a fight and they charged me for assault in Maryland while I was on a promo tour with Game. And um and I, that's when I knew that this article because it came out around either a few months before I started trial on that case or around the time when I was on trial or something. But I just remember they had it like every day um, and paraded around with it and, and, and was telling people I was such a bad guy and how dangerous I was. That's when I knew that that autumn was the worst thing that I ever did. Jimmy saw firsthand how someone in journalism lurking in the shadows with a well-earned reputation was always looking for that sensational headline. Ethan Brown chronicled many aspects of hip-hop culture as a writer. I found it curious that someone as savvy as Jimmy would have been duped by Ethan wanting to do a hit piece for Vibe. Everyone in hip-hop wanted more information on Jimmy's life he was, as he said, the boogeyman of the industry. The question is, was Jimmy fully removed from his days in Brooklyn as a hustler and criminal? Had he made the full transition into a legitimate businessman? The thing that Ethan had promised me, he would, how he would shape the story. Yeah. He didn't shape the story that way. And, and, and look, man, I, I respect 
the, the integrity of journalism. Um, sure. But look, man, and, and I've, I've been the victim of people writing things that aren't, aren't true. And depending on the writer would be depending on how they write it. He starts the article off saying that I am the uber villain in, in the music industry. And, yeah. and that uber villain seemed like it became magnified at that point. Before then, nobody had real access to me. The only thing that I would talk about is the music industry and the things that I've done. And they would write whatever about my past history as far as my arrest or whatever on their own. But it was that article that not only did it get on enforcement, not only did I get on law enforcement um, radar, that's when I got on Chuck Phillips' radar at that point also. And so you you think after yeah. after Easton wrote that article that that's when Chuck Phillips started to 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 gain more interest in 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 your story. The question I posed during the above call would be the first of many times that Chuck Phillips would appear in this narrative. Phillips was a writer at the LA Times in 1995, chronicling the music and entertainment industries. At some point, Phillips became obsessed with the shooting of Tupac at Quad Studios, and he was particularly interested in Jimmy's involvement in the shooting. Like, people would ask me for interviews, and then they would spring the Tupac question on me. And that yeah. was something that the publicists would tell them they couldn't ask. You know what I'm saying? Because I didn't want to talk about it. Um, yeah. But that twin peak of the interest pretty much um, started. Because if you look at articles before that, they would only talk about my musical accolades and the things mm -hmm. that I've done in the music business. Everything after that turned to... Um, you know, the allegations of Tupac and magnifying what he said in that record. Well, what I don't understand, and, and you know, with that record that he made, where he mentions my name, he mentions a whole bunch of people's names in that record. He starts off the record talking about Nas, Jay-Z, and, and really everybody. And then he mentions this one little, maybe a bar worth of, of something. And it turned into a whole other kind of animal. What Jimmy was talking about was Tupac's verse on the song Against All Odds, released in 1996. The lyrics are as follow. And, and, and the, the, the crazy thing about that whole thing is me and this guy never was at first. We've never had an argument outside of him feeling like, hey man, can you tell me how these guys knew that I was coming to the studio? But at the end of the day, me and this guy never had no problem. We had no problem at all. And yeah. I'm the last person that that had a problem with Pop. I had no reason to have a problem with him. I had to, he, he didn't have enough jewelry for me to want to rob him. If that was the case, then we would have done that to Puffy and everybody else in the industry that had a, a diamond Rolex watch and, and chain and so on and so forth. And, you know, there, there was no reason for me to, to have a problem. 
And if you knew Pac, you knew why. You mentioned street guys and the record. It's only because that, that was the, the kind of attention he wanted toward that record. Saying the things that he's saying, that it's the realest thing that he ever wrote. He couldn't mention imaginary people. He had to mention real guys who was in the streets. You know, so so it, it, it almost makes sense for him to mention me and Tut and whoever else he mentioned in that record. Journalist Chuck Phillips in 2008 wrote an article in the LA Times that Jimmy organized the 1994 attack on Tupac at Quad Studios in Times Square. The article alleged that Biggie Smalls and others knew about the attack weeks in advance. Phillips ended up duped by fake FBI 302 documents from a purported confidential informant, and the Times had to print a full retraction of the story. Phillips was also fired and disgraced as a journalist. Jimmy sued Chuck Phillips and the LA Times and won an undisclosed sum of money. Chuck Phillips, at the time of his firing, would continue to look into Jimmy and many others by reaching out to friends in federal prison. But, um, you know, all of that was unfounded, man. And, um, again, I wish that, that Pac was alive to, to the point of where he would have been able to answer that. Like, why did you mention these guys in the record? And knowing that we didn't have anything to do with nothing that happened to When you're trying to become as successful as you're trying to become, and there are stories that are blatantly wrong, how, how does that affect you um, sort of psychologically and mentally? Because, you know, you do say even in the Vibe article that your focus was to become as successful as you possibly could in the music industry and you were on your way to doing that. What did that do to, to you psychologically to have an institution like the LA Times that have your name attached to something? It's almost like a fantasy. Well, you know, it, it almost starts to dictate some of your actions. And, and, and the only reason it dictates it a little bit is only because you are seeing the, the funny faces you're, you're watching question marks on the faces of people and one of the things that I used to do to dispel to dispel any of those myths is to say if y'all believe the things that y'all hear about me because remember it wasn't only that the, the Tupac um, fiction that I was accused of it was also that I was racketeering in the business that I was extorting in the business, that I was, you know, uh, I was strong on, that I was walking in people's offices and, and shaking them down, that I was, you know, there were so many rumors out there. And I used to tell people, if y'all, there's no way for me to hide any of those. This call is from a federal prison. There's no way for me to hide any of those facts if they're true. If they're true, then they have to be a, a executive. They have to be an A and R. They have to be a producer. Somebody who could come forward and say, "Yo, Jimmy grabbed me, pistol whipped me, made me give them piece of my check every time that we we did something together with him." They would have to have those kind of real stories where a guy could come forward and say that. You can't tell me that everybody's afraid to 
speak forward the way that people hide behind computers now and, and, and spit out all this fiction. So they, they would be somebody who could come forward and say, yeah, man, I had a run-in with this guy. I did, I, I did business with Jimmy Rosen and he um, dealt with me um, unfavorably and, and, and not like a businessman. There is no one I can say that with 100% certainty that there's no one out there that can say that I even gave them a bad contract. I would walk into to offices and you would hear the whispers from secretaries and you would see the extra security bumped up when I was in Los Angeles walking into the Interscope building. And it was for no reason. And, and, and because of that, I used to go into these offices alone I wouldn't go in there with with two or three, you know, people that are just business people with me because I had to try to dispel the the perception. For some reason the 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 Jimmy Henchman connotation was was real to people. It it became real. Of something that was a myth became real in the mind of people. And so it ended my business on all aspects. I, I was so mindful to not even raise a voice, raise my voice in a meeting or, or, or yeah, or a meeting, a marketing meeting or a promotion meeting, because I didn't want them to feel like I was intimidating. Why do you think the NYPD never were able to just go and say, hey, this is what happened at Fox Studios, this is the person that did it, and we're going to put this, this whole case to bed? Because it wasn't a murder and because it was an assault, I think that they kind of felt that it doesn't need to be solved. Um, yeah. Let the rumors be out there. Whatever that rumor created, it, it, people say that it was a, 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 a so-called war between East and West. That's what triggered it. Um, I think, you know, none of the record companies, you can't only blame NYPD. I also blame the record company. I blame Interscope as much as I blame Arista um, with Bad Boy. Um, yeah, I blame Arista with Bad Boy as much as I blame Interscope, as much as I blame NYPD. Because yeah. it, you're, you're in Times Square, you're in Times Square, and you got cameras, and you have all these things, you have witnesses. There's no way why it shouldn't have been solved. I, in fact, I wish it was solved, so that way it wouldn't fall on my shoulders as fast. You know, yeah. but um, you know, anytime you can you can link a, a, a character, especially if it's a, it, it, you know, it, it, Tupac's assault ends up becoming what Kennedy's assassination was in Dallas. It just yeah. was like the shooter at it on the grassy knoll and these all these theories and they just couldn't bend hands and it it just became so complex. Um and, and I I'm sure the record company resources with the NYPD resources, this could have been solved in them. But because somebody was making some money on this situation. In understanding the significance of the early recorded phone calls. Jimmy's talk about Quad Studios was very important to the larger path of this story. Quad was a singular event, 
that put into motion the events that would lead to the deaths of both Biggie and Tupac. 